Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we have an encore presentation of one of my favorite episodes. I sat down with Debbie Harry and Chris Stein of Blondie. They really brought the early years of their band and the 70s New York scene that surrounded them to life, and they're also really hilarious. I hope you enjoy, and I also hope you had a really great Thanksgiving. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. You're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm really excited to be in the studio with Chris Stein and Debbie Harry of Blondie. And Howdy. Hello. And Debbie has a really entertaining and honest new memoir out called Face It. And Chris has always got stuff going on and they're playing shows as Blondie (coughs) and uh, very much an ongoing thing. And I guess I would start by, Debbie, you say in the book that you're really not into digging up the past. And then, then you do it in the book, and then you've been going around talking about the book. So Horrible. How, yeah, yeah, how's that been for you? It's eviscerating. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I have actually thought seriously of slitting my throat or maybe clipping my tongue so that I, I couldn't do it. Um, just, just kidding around. I mean, I guess, you know, it wasn't my idea to do the book, but... There I got corralled into it in a way, and then well, it sort you, of got them, rolling, you know. Them, you know, the Ramones used to put up these flyers that said, we don't want to, but we will. Yes, <laughs> I didn't the, want to, but I did. Yeah. I think I wrote that in there. I think so, too. Yeah, I, I wrote that I've in there. Seen your reference. I didn't want to, but I did. And there you have it. Chris, what did you learn that you didn't know from reading this book? Um, some of the stuff about the bad upbringing, you know. A little bit of the family stuff, but, you know, I'm not sure. Just in that attitude. There's some, she has some, uh, the same moments that have different recollections. But I, as I say, memory is subjective, you know. So it, none of this may have happened. <laughs> no, nowhere in the world, none of this is going on. It's all in your mind. Well, it's always been the case with us is that I remember it my way, you remember it your way, and then eventually we come to the reality of what really happened. And isn't that, I mean, what is that, that one, that movie, you know, it's like that. Rashomon, yeah. Rashomon, oh, yeah, yeah, there you go. So yeah. our lives are just a pile of Rashomon. And when you get to be our age, like, people come up to you all the damn time, go, yeah, you remember this? And no, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, but okay, <laughs> you remember it, so good. So wait, you're going to, everybody, it's all going to happen to you, just like that. And um, Probably. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> well, what did you, what most disagreed with your recollection in the book? Where did you go, that's not how it happened? Just to oh, put you on the spot. I don't know. Well, we didn't, my wife was complaining about the fact we didn't really flee New York after 9-11. <laughs> we just, we were kind of looking around to get out of town prior to that. But See, uh, but I didn't know that. That's okay. You know, it's, and I didn't know that, you know, they were starting a family and that they. Well, we, no, we didn't either until we got up there. Well, I know, but they were starting, you know, thinking about starting a family, and they lived a few blocks from the Twin Towers, and so the the fallout thing and the air pollution from the collapse of the yeah, building no, was Barbara got very thyroid sick. cancer and oh, all man. that. Yeah. Yeah, so you know yeah. that it was primarily they were, you know. It was a serious consideration. It wasn't just a joke. Well, we, we had to get it out of our system living in the woods briefly, you know. Yeah, and so we went up to Woodstock, which is pretty great, you know. Debbie, I was struck by the sense that you sort of seemed to have a, a sense of destiny almost, that you were meant to be something, an artist, 
on stage something without necessarily knowing exactly what it was until you realized, oh, it's, it's leader of a rock band, maybe. What do you remember about that feeling, especially like towards the end of high school and just feeling that you needed to get out of where you were? Oh, I always knew that. It <laughs> didn't have anything to do with high school. I think I knew it from a pretty early age, but did not really know how to express it or, or how to direct it. It was just a, an inclination, shall we say. You talk, and, oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. That's pretty much it. It was an inclination and an instinct, I guess. Yeah. You were living in New York at a time when you could just wander in and the band that happened to be playing was like the Velvet Underground. What do you remember about that first show you saw by them? Oh, it was fabulous. I think that was the one that was at the Balloon Farm, or that's the one that sticks out in my mind the most. And Andy Warhol was doing the lights. He used to and do the lights. It was fantastic. He was doing the lights. He created this palette on stage. It was fabulous. And Nico was there, and she was wearing this sort of chartreuse green jacket. And it was just beautiful to look at. And it was wonderful what they were playing all those great songs and it, w it was the full band john john was there and lou and maureen and it was just you know the whole deal i opened up for the velvets when i was 17 man with, with my friends from brooklyn how'd that go uh, it was great it was phenomenal and maureen tucker let us turn her bass drum right side up and we used their amps it was fantastic and I think somewhat around the same time, you got to see Janis Joplin, and that also made a, a different kind of impression upon you. Oh, well, yes. I mean, I saw Janis Joplin perform at the Anderson Theater. The Anderson Theater was uh, down the road on 2nd Avenue from uh, the Fillmore. And the Anderson, I don't think it was open for more than a week. It was a very <laughs> short uh, shot. The theater was a, a little bit in disrepair, and it was, smelled very moldy. But it was a beautiful old theater, and I don't know what happened to that space they, now. They had a thing going at the Anderson Theater for a while that was almost like an open mic thing for bands. Yeah, but it was anybody, very short-lived. Yeah, it, was, it didn't last very long, but anybody could just go in there and take, get a time slot and set up and play yeah. to whoever was there in the house. Yeah. So anyway, I saw Janice and, um, you know, the holding company. And, uh, you know, Sam was playing guitar and... Uh, the, you know, she had her bottle of Southern Comfort on the stage and was, you know, doing that thing. It was fabulous, very entertaining. And, you know, they had a bit, a bit of a raw sound. It wasn't like what it evolved to for her. But uh, with the holding company, it was pretty exciting. And then, I don't know, I think it was later on that... Uh, I waited on her when I was working at Max's Kansas City in the first evolution of Max's. And, did you, uh, she had did a you was that Anderson Theater gig the Hells Angels gig? Because I don't she because so. I saw her at the Fillmore for the first time they were at the Fillmore. Ah. And but she had done this Hells Angels gig prior. Maybe that a was a little it. bit before, yeah. Well, I was just so down for this show. I can't can't tell you how excited I was. And my my memory of it was after the first song, when the audience went crazy, how excited she got because she it was like she didn't know what to expect. And when she got the positive feedback from the audience, she, she really kind of lost it. It was great. Now, one early group you had was uh, The Wind in the Willows. Mm. And uh, I was just listening to, there was a song where you had lead vocals, uh, Jeannie Judy. Mm. And we'll play that for a moment. Oh, God. I didn't write the song. Don't blame me for the song. 
I took the opportunity to sing it. It was it was pretty. Uh, the band was sort of like this Baroque folk rock kind of group. And it, it was actually started by one of my best friends from high school. Her husband started the band, Paul Klein, and he wrote all the material, I believe. And originally, I just started singing harmonies and backups, and it was very casual. And then it evolved into some, you know, a recording situation. But recording situations in those days was a lot different than now. So uh, anyway, Paul recently died. Oh. Yeah, so uh, that's the end of that. You can't interview Paul now. No Wind in the Willows reunion, unfortunately. But it's funny because Rick Ocasek, who just died, I learned that he was in a very similar kind of Baroque folk band. Uh, so everyone went through the stages. these stages. Yeah. It's just people don't realize you don't arrive fully formed. Almost everyone has stages. A lot of it is sort of uh, indicated or, or directed by the industry as well because of you know what the A&R people are looking for to invest in. And that's you know sort of what we got involved in. Artie Kornfeld, who was one of the people who started the festival, the Woodstock Festival, he was our producer. So, you know, it was a small world, you know, it was a smaller world. Well, the first electric band I ever saw was the Blues Project. Right. Which is way back. And, you know, Danny Kalb was great. Um, I think Al Cooper was the keyboardist in that. And it was, you know, it was a. I went out with Danny Kalb's younger brother. And he, we had, he had this old car and we were on the, I think we were on the BQE and the car died. And so we're standing there in the middle of the night, you know, how are we going to, what are we going to do with this dead car? You know, nobody had a cell phone, of course. And the cops came by and uh, so I convinced them to take the car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We all came through the folk scene in the, you know, West Village, all that stuff. I used to see Hendrix walking around the streets and Richie Havens, the whole nine yards. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. One influence that you hear about over and over again from a really diverse set of people uh, is the Shangri-Las. And, yeah. and they were a really big deal for you. Honestly, I didn't appreciate the Shangri-Las when I was a kid. I thought it was kind of too commercial, you know. And then I, you know, later when we were in doing the band stuff and we started listening to that stuff, I realized how epic it was. Yeah. What do they mean to you, though? Well, you know, the, those heartbreaker songs, you know, oh, you know, really hit. I think it was more important for girls than for boys um, or young men. <laughs> and we really were we really were attracted to this song called Out in the Streets, which we yeah. eventually recorded and we used to do in the old days, which is a lesser known song, but it's just really great. I mean it's and like Strange a, from Kansas City too. Yeah. You know, Ellie Greenwich actually sang yeah, on In the Flesh. Of, and, and Atomic. She sang and Atomic. And later on, when we were signed with uh Shep Gordon, he had Frankie Skinlaro working for him and Frankie was this kind of, you know, tour guy. And his job with the Shangri-Las 
was to keep them, because they were all young, right. is to keep them in the hotel room at night. And so he had to entertain them somehow. <laughs> and so he had, he had great stories. He had great, great stories. And, and, uh, and they were two sets of twins, which was bizarre. Good for the harmonies, obviously. Very good, yeah. And uh, obviously a huge influence, and very directly so on, on you, was the, the New York Dolls. Well, yeah, I was inspired by the dolls. I don't know if they were a musical influence because they were they were sort of more like the stones and and I never really envisioned being like the stones. although Chris wanted to be Keith Richards. <laughs> I don't know if Keith Richards necessarily kind of a mashup of Nick and Keith perhaps. Well, Brian was my hero too. Oh yeah, Brian. Well, well they Brian seem Jones. to spark your imagination more than they directly musically influence you, but they did seem very important to sort of getting you out there is what it seems like or something like that. The dolls yeah. were really important to the whole New York scene, but in a kind of negative way too, because they went out and they failed. Yes. Because nobody was ready for them. So everybody, it kind of insulated the New York scene a little bit. Everybody was like, oh, well, you know, why bother? Is Nothing's going to happen with this ever. And maybe that was a good thing. And then the next thing was, uh, I, I believe the Stilettos was a group you had. And then you, you encountered, you actually like walked in on a Stilettos gig and well, that's yeah, how it all I kind of- went yeah. to their first show. Yeah. And I thought Debbie was really terrific, and that was kind of it. I was really taken with her and then joined up shortly thereafter. You had been dyeing your hair platinum blonde, I think, since you were like a teenager, and it, it started with a, like a Marilyn Monroe thing, right? That was the kind of... Yeah, more or less. I think that uh, a lot of us were very taken with the silver screen, the blonde image, and Marilyn, of course, was prime example in those days, I guess in the 50s and 60s. So I wanted to uh, sort of bring a more cinematic image to the front of the band, which is was part of that. I think when the first song that I wrote with you was Platinum Blonde, and it says Marilyn and Jean, Jane, May, and Marlene, so it's like it, it included, you know, more than Marilyn, although it's gotten honed down to just being Marilyn. But I, I think uh, Carol Lombard and, you know, some of the earlier ones, too, they were... They were just uh, so, you know, it was very, very exciting image. And you literally got, I guess, cackled on the street, hey, Blondie, and that's kind of where the whole, is that where the whole thing really came from? Yeah. So we were working on getting a name. Yeah. And I, I came in and said, oh, why don't we call it Blondie? Well, you should, uh, you dyed your hair. The, like just well, Yes, I, had, I was working in a salon at the time. My hair had you know, gone through a lot of different color changes. It was back to natural. We didn't have any customers that day. They said, oh, let's dye your hair blonde. <laughs> I said, okay. Because, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I always liked the way it looked. So anyway, he met me when I had brown hair. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it... You know, it obviously became a thing. Part of, I think, a lot of people responded to in the book is your description of the character that you started to create. You said a lot about that. It was almost like you were in a woman and drag as a woman. This yeah. kind of thing. How, how much of that was on your mind at the time and how much was instinctual? How much did you realize later what you were doing? If you know what I mean? Like, how much of that was kind of worked out in your head while you were doing it? Well, I really loved what the drag you know, artists of the day were doing and, um, you know, had been to all the shows and been to, oh God, what was that little club over there on like 12? 82 Club. No, no, no. On the west side that started with an R. Don't know. 
Anyway, mm-hmm. I used to go there a lot, and uh, you know, all different kinds of artists were performing there, and and Holly Woodlawn actually. Yeah, we knew Holly. Yeah, we were close friends with Holly and Jackie Curtis a little bit, and then later on Jane. I had met Candy with with Eric. Yeah, so you know, they were, they were a big part of the scene, and um, always you know very creative in performance <coughs> and uh, very smart. Very interesting. And later on, you know, Tony and Grassi came in and was our director. And he would, you know, demand. He was very demanding in terms of, you know, getting a, getting a real sort of, not just singing. He wanted more. And I think when we were starting as vocalists, you know, it was just to get the song out and get it, get it right. But then he really put the screws on us. So it was good training. I like that you had this thought, Debbie, that you wanted people to dance again to rock and roll from the very beginning. You were sick of like looking at these static crowds. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was really embedded seemingly from the very beginning into the, into the band. Yeah, it was. And Tony was a big part of that as well because uh, we all love dancing. And, you know, it didn't seem like most of the clubs didn't really have license, basically, f- for dancing. And I think audiences were a little bit discouraged to stand up and, you know, start moving out. But later on at CBGB's, when there was an unseated area in front of the stage, it became more viable and more realistic. And, you know, there was there was more, more physical response. Was the romance around CBs justified in your view? Or was it also kind of disgusting, which it which it was having been there, like the the ba- I mean, certainly the bathroom by the '90s was like the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. So, how do you see it? Did it earn its reputation in your actual experience? Yes, I can't imagine trying to run a club like that. I think now that Hilly was some kind of weird genius, and you know he he was dedicated to that. You know, he had another restaurant on West Ninth Street <coughs> years before that. And it was more of a, I don't know, jazz and blues because that's, you know, he was into bluegrass and the blues. So then when he, you know, came over to the Bowery, it was actually in his wife's name, Karen's name. And he they did the CBGB's thing. And I guess, you know, he just wanted to do music. And uh, the music of the day was not so blues oriented or folk oriented. So it evolved, and he got in, you know, the local bands. But he was, you know, he was very funny about, you know, he would always critique the bands. Mm. It was what, what was his uh, critique of Bonnie? It was always uh, there's something there. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of that was the phrase I remember most frequently. <laughs> it's funny. I talked to Billy Idol recently, and he was talking about having a look, a signature look that in his case was very amplified by the early days of MTV right away was both a blessing and a curse. And I kind of got that from the book that it really was both for you. Well, Be- MTV never put us in heavy rotation exactly because they really wanted to say, oh, we invented Madonna and we invented Billy Idol and we had already been churning out videos before so but that's what's peculiar is you actually had even so just from album covers and everything else you still had that level of recognizability and still managed to be known for that signature look so i mean how do you see it how much of it was a blessing and how much of it was a curse well what What? mtv (laughs) well no not mtv (laughs) no but just like being known for your music and also being known for a very striking look well i mean i figured i mean that's why we sort of 
did what we did physically with, you know, the way that the guys dress and the way that, you know, I presented myself. It had to be some somewhat compatible. And uh, we always liked the bands that had a, a shtick, you know, a look that you weren't just standing up there in your everyday clothes. I mean, television made it work because it was, you know, this like, as Elda said, the old man look. <laughs> yeah, well, they were, they were very anti-glam. Yeah. So So, I mean, we had to do we had to do something, and it also had to be affordable. So what we could find in the secondhand stores were a lot of stuff, um, mod stuff. Yeah, all this great stuff from the city. Well, we all liked the mod aesthetic too. You know, we all grew up with James Bond and West Side Story, and all those things were influences on our. And it was also counter to, you know, the hippie look with the big pants and so. Yeah, we well, I really hated the wide lapels. You know, I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand the wide lapel. Everybody liked those, you know, narrow lapels and skinny ties. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about writing some of the songs. I, I mean, something like "In the Flesh." What do you remember about that one coming together? Did you come up with the music? For it's that? like an oldie. You know, it's just it's an oldie with the minor is in a different place. Yeah. Right. You know, Phil Spector. Yeah. Little it's, bit. I mean, yeah. it's just you know, it's your standard. Dum, da, 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 dum, da, 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 dum, da, 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 dum. It's, it's that you know, except the the minor chord is elsewhere that in your standard uh, bebop progression. I think I actually was inspired by the dolls writing the dolls, that yeah. song. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Your vocal style was pretty formed from the beginning. Do you remember when it really crystallized for you, maybe on stage? Mm, not especially, no. Uh, I think that I was always greatly influenced by girl groups because that was pretty much all there was for me as a kid. Screaming Jay Hawkins, perhaps. Huh. <laughs> That's a cool influence. Yeah. I wouldn't have called that one. And Hanging on the Telephone you was like by a band called The Nerves. Nerves and- version is killer. Nerves version is so great. It's just on YouTube. Just everybody. I, I rec- checked it out the other day. Yeah. So what's the story behind it making its way to you? I had it of Jeffrey Lee Pierce, from the, who later was in the gun club, but early on was the head of our fan club when he was just a kid, gave me a mixtape. And that was on the mixtape. And I was really drawn to that song. And we were in Tokyo, and we were in a taxi cab, and I was playing it on a boombox, and the old cab driver started tapping his fingers on the steering wheel, and I went, oh, okay, that's the sign. <laughs> and that's the true story. One way or another, I, th- I think you so wrote... We get, with, wait, with, wait yeah. that there's something that goes along with that. From there on... Any kind of song that we had that we wanted to test, we would get into a cab and give it the taxi test. It's kind of brilliant, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one way or another, I think you wrote with Nigel. What do Nigel. you remember? What do you remember about that one coming together? Which one? One, one way, way or another? another? Yeah. Well, I wrote Union City with him too. Well, one way or another came out of that rhythm machine and Roland. I can't remember what model number was that little compact DX Roland seven or whatever, yeah. And and the rhythm machine that synced together, which was such a big deal with VCF, you know, voltage controlled oscillators way before MIDI. And the groove was based a little bit on a demo he had put together. Yeah, he came in with the song sort of fully written and then, you know, we started putting it together with the whole group. But it was actually a pretty much a live evolution right yeah i mean all that stuff kind of you know yeah. was formed yeah 
in the studio. I, you know, you ever see that Godard movie about the making of Symphony for the Devil? Yes, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's so such a great damn thing, you know. So just like that, basically. <laughs> yeah, it didn't take that long. Yeah, uh, and then I mean, Heart of Glass, obviously monumental, and you know, it had it had various incarnations. At one point, I think you were just calling it the disco song. Yeah, yeah. Well, we really were. You know, so this year, once again, Kraftwerk has been nominated for the Hall of Fame. I think this is the fourth <laughs> or fifth year. They should have been in the first time they yeah. were nominated for couldn't sure. agree more yeah so yeah. we were referencing craft work we were much more thinking about the electronica aspect than about the disco aspect do magazines do you get to vote i personally do get to vote yes okay. uh, well, so I, i'm definitely i look forward to along with you voting for craft work for the upteenth time yeah yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. Just, I just keep voting for craft work so, i can't you know. believe motorhead is not already in the hall of fame though this seems completely crazy to me it's a yeah, somewhat yeah, baffling process they should they should change the damn name to like popular music hall of fame also and get rid of everybody complaining about you know oh the whalers are not rock and roll or whatever the hell it is you know? right well we used to i was you know shocked that chaka khan wasn't and it either, and we used to cover that song. And we used to, yeah, which... Um, I got the feeling, you I, got the feeling, you got the... Uh, I got, you got the love. You got the love, yeah. that's it. Mm. Great song. So that, that's interesting. So it was more craft work than like Giorgio Moroder or Donna That's what we were Summer. thinking of. Yeah. It, was, it was all about syncing up the rhythm machine to the Roland synthesizer. And that was such an exciting thing for us because it was kind of the first time we had experienced that. Well, once that pulse is going, yeah. it changes yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Actually, you're talking about that pulse thing. I used to go to the laundromat <laughs> to get a pulse. Uh-huh. And I used to do a lot of songwriting in, in the laundromat because that, that, you know, that thing was going on. In, and it was the whole room was practically vibrating. Around this time, Debbie, you talk about interviewers just asking about your relationship over and over again when it was, you know, and they would ask you how it felt. And, and you well, know, the big question I remember was, how does it feel to be a sex symbol? That was the yeah, main well, And how does it feel thing. to be dating a sex yeah, symbol was yeah. the other question. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's always, what were you supposed to say? I, you know, it's great. Whatever. It's cool. <laughs> it is that weird thing where you're, it's your life. You're living this relationship, and it's also becoming an object of public scrutiny at the same time, which is always a weird thing to. Yeah, if we had any brains, we could capitalize like Kim and Kanye. <laughs> but no, but I'm too no. stupid about it. We could have cashed in. Jesus, Chris! Now you think of it. Yeah, it's incredible to realize that you guys broke up circa '82 and somehow had no money. I mean, you, you read this story about people in the music industry over and over again it doesn't make it any less shocking when you read it again or i'm sure to experience it mm. like look i mean how how does that happen is it just that they keep you so much on the treadmill that you're never able to take a look and see what's happening with the accounts or we, we had bad bad advice bad and, advice we trusted too um, many people not good management you know we had a lot of things against you know the record company uh, went bust they closed down. All these things sort of happen simultaneously. And if you had one thing happen, okay, you well, maybe yeah, could plus deal we were, with it. We were stoned we and not paying attention. Thing. We were, you know, we were getting it was like high. the domino thing. But we had this really sleazy accountant who the two years we made the most money just tried to get us into tax shelters and avoid paying taxes. So that just caught up with us big time, too. I mean, six albums, and you're left like that. It's insane. Yeah, it's, no, it's, you know, shit happens. <laughs> and it seems like you really didn't think 
the band was going to get back together. It kind of, at that point, it, it felt like it was, it was really over. Did you think it was over? Initially, yeah. I mean, I didn't really consider it until later. I mean, as I always say, it's just after a while, I saw more and more people referencing us. And when we stopped working, there was no, you know, there was no recognition at all for a, a couple of years. And then, then I started seeing other bands and the media started to reference Blondie. There's the thing with the For Your Eyes Only song that was a, actually a total miscommunication. They already had the song and you were just supposed to provide vocals and you, you heard an entirely other For Your Eyes Only song. I don't know. I don't even know the whole story behind that. It was, yeah, it was a, a case of, a bit of a case of miscommunication. Um, I, I, that's all I really know. Yeah. But I, I think that our song was really good. I just was listening to that Nancy Sinatra one, which is Only Live Twice recently. That's so good. There's some really great Bond themes and yeah. some really bad ones, you know. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. John Barry wrote the Nancy one. That's, he's God. Debbie, one pitfall that you managed not to fall into is, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, since we were just talking Thanks about the financial that. one, for financial <laughs> one, uh, is, well, there were plenty you didn't, but, you know, since we were just talking about the financial one, but you, you never became like a drug addict. Sounds like you never were addicted, unless I'm missing something, that you were able to occasionally use heroin, but never got addicted to it. No, we had habits. No, I had a habit. Okay. And, you know, it sort of outlived its uh, glory and uh, the way that, they should or the way that they do you know it just sort of became this a treadmill or rat race and that was very distasteful to me i like the social aspects of it and early on it really was kind of very sociable you go to somebody's house or you go to a party or something and you know say ah oh, would you like a little and it was uh, more casual yeah, and plus, then, you know, everybody's thinking, oh, I'm going to be like Lou Reed and Burroughs, my yeah, heroes, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's different. And all this stuff. But and I always say, got smart. I always say heroin is like loan consolidation. So all your problems just become the one problem, which is getting more heroin. So everything else in your life is like <laughs> secondary, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think between, you know, Chris and I, even with an addiction like that, you know, a lot of people fall under the the mood of it and somehow or whether we sort of kept a sense of humor somehow didn't well, yeah, we you know I'll, some yeah. kind of disproportionate humor about it even though it was this, as i say a, a rat race and a drag a lot of funny stuff happened a lot of funny stuff <laughs> happened yeah what's it like to play now you've had a reunion that that's just lasted and and has included one of the great things about it is unlike some reunions where people just kind of like pump out the tours you've also made a lot of really good new music and haven't stopped making new music so yeah. how, how does it feel to, to be in blondie now oh i love doing tours and i love playing and when i'm not you know it's sort of like when we're, when the tour ends i feel like i have like this postpartum you know Ugh. oh god now my what my life is over but now i'm looking forward to getting back in the studio but you know i have to say one thing you know that over all those years when blondie wasn't together um, how many, what, three or four solo albums? And yeah, Chris was a touring, heavy touring. participant in that. So there's a lot of good music there, too. Do you know what the next album's going to be like? Have you thought about it? Well, the last one was a lot of uh, outside material, so the right. next one will be more of our own stuff, hopefully. But I'm just kind of scratching the surface yeah, on we're it. Just... And then we do have this really awesome Johnny Marr song. Once again, he gave us a really great track, so... We'll see what happens. We, you know, Another big Shangri Las fan, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the whole, you know, the, we're a victim of the whole album versus putting out singles 
scenario that's going on in modern times whereby, I mean, album is just for our heavy fan base demographic. Most people are just knocking out singles like Panini. Well, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, you know, yeah. but we don't have, you know, we're okay boomers. You know, it's not <laughs> Instant like, this, instant that, you know. Oh, I want money. Give me money, right? Yeah. Uh, we saw this great guy on the street, you know, doing that chant. It was yeah. always an inspiration, right? He he was a he yeah. Was a I want guy. money because I need this and I need that because I need money because I need this and, and I, I need, need that. that. That was and it was just a street guy, but he yeah. it was mem- it's, that was many years ago, and we still remember it. Yeah. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Stein and Debbie Harry, thanks so much for being here. I could have talked to you all day. Death to capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually going to be our final new show of the year. And so thanks to everyone for listening all year. And we will be back next year with more interviews, more discussions about stuff, and just generally more episodes of Rolling Stone Music Now. And we're always grateful for everyone who listens. And that is our show. We'll be back in the new year here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we're a podcast. If you don't already know that, you should know that by now. But subscribe to us as a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, leave us a nice review on iTunes if you possibly can. It's always appreciated. And once again, thanks for listening. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And we'll see you in the new year. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.